Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, September the 4th. In the latest podcast, we're discussing a seminar about alcohol use disorders. Alcohol is something very topical socially. It's in the news a lot. And I think as a health community internationally, we probably know quite a lot about the adverse health impacts of alcohol. But this seminar, I think, draws out some really interesting points which are relevant to doctors and their patients. I'm delighted to be joined by a great friend of The Lancet and the main author behind the seminar, and that's Professor Wayne Hall. Hello, Wayne. Hello, Richard. Good to be speaking to you, Wayne. Just give us your full title and and affiliation. You're in Brisbane, aren't you? Wayne Hall. I'm the director of the Centre for Youth Substance Abuse Research at the University of Queensland. Wayne, as I alluded to in the intro there, I mean, we seem to be talking about alcohol a lot as a society. Just remind us of the adverse health impacts. We do know them, of course, but just remind us of the of the main ones concerning a high alcohol use. Yeah, well, I guess we can classify them under two broad headings. There's the, the acute effects, particularly of intoxication, which are probably the biggest impact, that, and they can affect people who don't have uh, alcohol use disorders. These are injuries, assaults, uh, suicides, and... Uh, uh, rare, but I think uh, people need to know people can die of alcohol overdoses. People can uh, drink too much alcohol and their respiration and the heart can stop. And then there's the more familiar consequences of sustained heavy drinking, uh, liver cirrhosis, various gastrointestinal diseases, uh, cancers, uh, alcohol dependence or alcohol use disorders as they're now known, and of course serious uh, psychiatric uh, psychoses and neurological conditions such as Wernicke-Korskopf's and major contributions to uh, the common cardiovascular diseases, myocardial infarction and stroke. What do we know about the epidemiology? We should say, of course, that in, in some cultures, alcohol isn't an issue at all because it's not used. What do we know about the epidemiology? How widespread is this? And also sex differences. There's plenty of data here, isn't there? There is. So we've got large population surveys that have been done in uh, North America, uh, the UK, Australia, various European countries. And prevalence is, is very common. If we're looking at sort of lifetime prevalence among adult men, some of the estimates are as high as sort of uh, one in three who uh, might meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder at some point in their lives. A lot lower in women, um, but the difference between men and women in in prevalence has been narrowing in in more recent birth cohorts as younger women drinking more like men. So we are beginning to see much less of the sort of sex difference in, in alcohol use disorders that we have uh, seen in the past. So, for example, in the past year, it's sort of likely to be about uh, about 17, 18% of men. This is on the most recent US survey, and about 10% of women who had uh, would have met criteria for one of those disorders if it had been uh, diagnosed by a psychiatrist or a physician. And what do we know um, about the effect that alcohol, high alcohol use has at the physiological level within the body? Because obviously the, understanding the biology of that presumably guides treatment possibilities. Well, I guess alcohol is sort of the quintessential dirty drug. It sort of has a whole range of effects. I mean, the reason we take it is it affects a bewildering variety of neurotransmitter systems in the brain that uh, make us feel sort of stimulated and or relaxed that give us sort of mild euphoric effect you know the major reason that people drink in large doses it has pretty unpleasant effects on the uh, gastrointestinal system and in very large doses uh, it can uh, produce uh, fatal uh, heart attacks uh, arrhythmias and, and so on work in the lancet in the past has shown as a major cause of premature death among uh, Russian men who drink very large quantities of uh, alcohol infrequently. Talking about risk, risk factors, again, plenty of evidence here. How would you briefly summarise the evidence 
ranging from obviously the social environment that, that can influence behavior towards the use of alcohol, but also um, genetic studies. There's, there's been quite a lot of uh, tw studies uh, into twins, hasn't there, looking at risk? Yes, I mean, there's no question there's a substantial genetic contribution to uh, risk of developing a problem with alcohol. That's sort of uh, a combination of uh, sort of shared genetic risk factors and also family factors. We know that, you know, being brought up in the family of a someone with an alcohol problem uh, increases your likelihood independently of the increased genetic risk. Uh, we've been less successful in identifying specific uh, genes that contribute to that risk. There's one pattern of uh, genes that influences how uh, alcohol is metabolized that is protective. In some Asian cultures, people have this gene uh, are much less likely to drink because if they do drink, they become quite ill. So certainly genetic factors play a role. The other big factors that I think contribute, um, apart from gender, in men uh, is often a history of antisocial behaviour. And people with who are anxious and or depressed are particularly likely to develop alcohol problems as a result of a miscarriage attempt to sort of uh, improve their depressed or anxious mood. So where are we falling down in terms of diagnosis and, and treatment for people who have an alcohol problem, be that not, not a light one, but we're talking, you know, medium to severe alcohol use, even though we know a lot about it and alcohol has been around for a very, very long time. As a society, either at a kind of local, regional, national, global level, we're still not tackling it properly, are we? No, I mean, there's, there's very uh, good evidence, and we review it in the paper, that uh, doctors inquiring about people's drinking and giving advice on cutting down in the event that they're drinking at risky levels, it does make a difference to people's alcohol intake and uh, is a useful intervention. The, the, the great challenge has been getting doctors to ask the question and provide the advice and feedback. And I think there, there's, uh, yeah, for a long time the same was true of tobacco smoking. Doctors sort of was none of their business as to whether their patients smoked. We've changed attitudes there. I think we need to produce equivalent changes in attitudes towards uh, doctors inquiring about their patients drinking and being prepared to give advice when that drinking is, is putting them at risk and also being prepared in the event when they develop serious health problems as a consequence of uh, alcohol use being prepared to encourage them to seek uh, specialist treatment. Just to conclude then, I mean it's the usual story isn't it? You've got on the one hand prevention, public health, out of interest what what does what does work in terms of public health prevention? Minimal alcohol pricing? Prices, uh, we know, you know what's been the big driver of the decline in, in smoking prevalence has been increased price. And we know from uh, abundant evidence in the alcohol area as well that you uh, increase price, you reduce drinking. And increasing price is a sort of user's pay, uh, user pays way of uh, extracting some sort of compensation for the damage done because the heaviest drinkers pay the most tax. So we know that's a very effective way of uh, reducing consumption and so is reducing availability. So if people can't drink uh, at any hour of the day or night, uh, uh, they're much less likely to continue drinking for uh, long periods of time. So reducing availability and uh, I guess the trickier one is attempting to combat the very uh, heavy promotion of alcohol and, and drinking to intoxication that the alcohol industry engage in. Yeah, so public health terms of prevention can only go so far can't it ultimately there's still going to be a population of people who are susceptible for whatever reason who may be moderate or high alcohol users they're still 
in the hands of the health profession. So it's the health professionals, doctors and other health professionals, are we saying that need to play a more active role in identifying the problem, diagnosis and treatment? And what, what are the best available treatments? Certainly the first, well, I agree with that, that general analysis. I mean, I think the public health policies could make the alcohol problem uh, a bit smaller than it is now. But I generally agree that even if we had the sort of uh, most effective public health policies, there would still be people who got into difficulty with drinking. A lot of their problems can be dealt with by sort of screening and simple advice. The sort of second line treatment, I guess, would be sort of more psychological interventions like cognitive behavioural therapy and motivational uh, enhancement. And for some people, those psychological treatments need to be supplemented by pharmacotherapies that reduce the rewarding effects of alcohol and so make it less likely that if they do return to drinking that they'll end up um, returning to heavy drinking. So drugs like naltrexone and almathine and acamprosate are the sorts of medications that come to mind. And how easy are these drugs to, to, to take if you're going down the pharmacological route? They're generally approved in, in many countries, certainly many developed countries, and can be prescribed by GPs. They don't have serious adverse side effects, so they're ones that people can take without getting into to, uh, into problems and um, they, they're not widely used. I know certainly in Australia and um, there's been a reluctance to use the pharmacotherapy that, that are available. Well it's a fascinating topic, it's a perennial topic, one that we will keep coming back to but I think this, this seminar is, is, is a really excellent way of just focusing on what we know and where we need to go. So pleasure as always talking to you Professor Wayne Hall on the line from Brisbane, Australia. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thanks Richard.